welcome to River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg. My name is Nolan Bicknell. With me as always is my co-host, Robert Zirk. On today's show, we're talking about another of the Vital Signs 2017 categories from the recently released report. Today's show is all about sustainability and environmental issues as they pertain to Winnipeg and Canada. Up first, lawyer Caitlin Mitchell of EcoJustice, Canada's largest environmental law charity. We're going to be learning about some of the environmental laws and issues that EcoJustice is fighting for. And if you're into green commuting, we'll be speaking with Mark Coho, the executive director of Bike Winnipeg, to learn a little bit more about infrastructure and safety as it pertains to cycling in our city. Then we'll talk to Sarah Wallace of Multi-Material Stewardship Manitoba, or MMSM, about the importance of recycling in Manitoba to help us become a more sustainable province. And we'll also speak with Eric Rose, the artistic director of Ghost River Theatre, and he'll be telling us more about their production of Tomorrow's Child, which is an audio-based performance that they're holding in conjunction with Theatre Projects Manitoba. We've got all this, some great tunes, and much, much more on today's episode of River City 360. Hello and welcome to River City 360. Nolan and Robert coming at you today. Robert, how are you doing this fine uh, November afternoon? I'm doing quite well. I can't believe we've had our first snowfall already, but I guess it's that time of year that time of year so why i don't know why i'm surprised yeah every year it kind of surprises us all a little bit because we have such beautiful summers and we forget that we're in a barren hellscape sometimes that's just absolutely freezing but uh you know them's the breaks here in manitoba and we make it work we have fun with it too so can't wait to go skating on the river it's going to be a blast Today we've got a fantastic show. It's all about sustainability. Now that's one of the categories in Winnipeg's Vital Signs 2017, which, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is a brand new survey that was released just a few weeks ago. It's basically just a snapshot of the current vitality of our city. So the show is jam-packed today. We're going to be covering uh, environmental law, recycling, green commuting. And on top of that, we've got a little bonus preview story about Tomorrow's Child, which is a new audio performance that's in conjunction with Theatre Projects Manitoba. So full show. Let's get right to it. We always kick things off with a song. So Robert, what are we going to start with today? Well, our first song today is by an all-star team. We've got Eddie Fisher, Perry Como, Hugo Winterhalter, and his orchestra with watermelon weather right here on river city 360 it's watermelon weather that summer kind of weather when people get together and sing it's the time of year the stars seem to dance with laughter And the moon's so big and ripe it can hardly climb So why don't you meander To your best gal's veranda And sorta, kinda, hand her the ring For it's the sweetheart kissin' season And all the world's in rhyme when it's watermelon, sweet love telling time. This is the time to sing this kind of pretty little ditty. 
I'm walking along and singing a song and clinging to someone pretty. The type of a tune to go with the moon that's sailing along away on high. After strolling a while for maybe a mile, remember to stop and pop the question. If your timing is right, your future is bright, as bright as a watermelon sky. And then when you found a bench for two, you found your cue to linger. The chance you sought to show what you bought, you happily thought to bring her. To sense the thing, you give her the ring, you purchase from the five and die. Take her in your arms and whisper that you are mine, all mine. With that line to sell, I'm here to tell that you'll do well in watermelon time. For it's the sweetheart kissing season, and all the world's in rhyme. When it's watermelon sweet love telling time. Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you today. And we're now joined via telephone by Caitlin Mitchell. She is a lawyer representing EcoJustice. Caitlin joins us from the offices in Toronto. Caitlin, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So EcoJustice is Canada's largest environmental law charity. And you guys have gone on to win uh, countless precedent setting cases on behalf of different First Nations, landowners, grassroots community coalitions, municipalities, and environmental organizations in, of all sizes. So I guess the first question is, how did eco-justice sort of come together and why is it a necessary uh, a coalition of, of people coming together? Eco-justice has been around actually for more than 25 years now and it started as a really small organization um, out of Vancouver and now uh, we've grown. So we have offices in um, a number of different places throughout the country, and, and we operate nationally, as you said. Um, and I think that the the reason why we're needed, unfortunately, is, is twofold. One is the reality is that governments, companies, and others, unfortunately, do not always comply with our existing environmental laws. And so often what we are doing is going to court on behalf of individuals or groups or communities to uphold the law where, where we see that they're being violated. Um, and the second reason that we're needed is that in many ways our environmental laws are uh, quite outdated and lacking and, and they don't adequately protect ecosystems or our health from mm. threats um, posed by pollution and other sources. So we also do our best to advocate for stronger laws across the country at provincial levels as well as at the federal level. How does Canada compare sort of to the, the on international stages when it comes to our environmental law? Are we are we behind? Are we kind of where where, where do the, where's the trends going right now? If you look at the world as a whole, yeah. I think it's safe to say that Canada does fairly well in many ways. You know, we are certainly a higher income country um, and we have a lot to be thankful for. But when you start to break it down a little and you look at how com Canada compares to some of our peers, the picture actually starts to look a little worse. We rank approximately 15th out of 17 peer countries when it comes to our environmental performance. Um, and, you know, that includes factors 
from a range of areas. So really, um, our environmental laws are unfortunately quite lacking when you start to look at Canada as compared to its peer countries. Um, to give you just one example, for instance, right now in Canada, we do not have a constitutional or statutory right to a healthy environment. That's something that's recognized in more than 150 countries around the world. More than 100 of those countries recognize this as a fundamental right in their constitutions. Mm -hmm. um, and we can see in those countries that they have had some serious benefits um, flowing from recognizing this basic right that their citizens have a right to live in a healthy environment. And unfortunately, Canada is one of very few countries that doesn't presently recognize this right. And, uh, and it's just one example, I think, of, of the ways in which our environmental laws really need to be brought into modern times and, and need to do a better job at protecting our health. Very interesting. So EcoJustice uh, has been fighting to protect the environment for, like you said, 25 years. What are some of the current issues that you guys are focusing on uh, today? We focus on a range of issues. Mm -hmm. Broadly speaking, we have um, teams that focus on climate change, as well as nature and community health. Uh, my work tends to focus on environmental rights, so that is looking at areas where environmental degradation and pollution are such that they violate human rights, so that can be human rights to life, to health, to well-being. So some of the areas that uh, I've been working on include um, doing a fair amount of work with individuals in the community of Amjanong First Nation. Mm -hmm. Amjanong is a small reserve community located in Sarnia in Ontario, and it's surrounded on all sides by what's commonly called Chemical Valley. Right. So there's a number of chemical and petrochemical facilities there, and they release tens of millions of kilograms of air pollutants um, each year. So we do a lot of work with that community um, and members of that community to try to improve the laws. Uh, we've gone to court twice now um, in an effort, again, to try to protect community health. Um, but that's, you know, that's one example of a community that we are working with where we see that on a daily basis their right to live in a healthy environment is being violated and so you know we we do our best to try to work with people there and try to um, help them and empower them to protect their community and their health you're sort of giving a voice to those that don't really have one on that kind of a scale when it comes to like national law or being able to argue for things you know People can't, regular citizens can't necessarily uh, do much about it when there's giant corporations with t tons of money that are breaking the law in some cases. Um, what, what can the average citizen do to sort of hold these corporations to a, to a higher standard or to, to demand that they actually participate in early, you know, like <laughs> to demand that they actually pay attention to the laws and work within the laws and strengthen our, our environmental laws? What can the average citizen do? It's a good question, and in some ways it kind of depends on where that citizen happens to live because okay. their rights, including procedural rights, vary from province to province. So, you know, at a very basic level, companies will perform only um, as well from an environmental standpoint as they are required to by law. Right. So if the legal framework is inadequate to protect human health, well, you know, then 
it's not unfortunately going to be a very good picture for um, individuals and so that's why we really try to focus on law reform but obviously from an individual standpoint it's hard to tackle a major law reform issue because you know you need political will yeah. and um, you know there's obviously competing factors that go into government decisions about law reform so it's a challenge mm-hmm. in Ontario we have an environmental bill of rights so that at least guarantees citizens some basic procedural rights, so rights to know about proposals for permits or regulations, for instance, and to comment on those proposals, um, so rights to participate in decision-making. And um, the, unfortunately, not all provinces have an environmental bill of rights, and certainly Manitoba does not. Um, so you know, procedural rights, while they don't sound very exciting, actually are really important. I work with communities that have procedural rights, and I work with communities, for instance, communities in Nova Scotia and Manitoba, that do not. And I've seen what a difference it makes when people, when there's no obligation for government to consult people, or people do not have, for instance, an appeal right when they see a decision that's been made and they think that decision is inadequate, that will pose threats to the environment, to their health, and they have no way to appeal the decision. Um, and it's, it's really unfortunate. So I think, um, you know, citizen ability to meaningfully impact government decision making unfortunately is pretty limited in provinces like manitoba that don't have an environmental bill of rights so for being as entrenched as you are for as long as you've been do you do you feel optimistic when it comes to um, global warming when it comes to canada's environmental law and when it comes to just how our country is doing on a national and international scale I have to maintain some level of optimism. (laughs) I mean, obviously, it's kind of a tough question, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say cautious optimism, uh, realistic optimism. And so, so yeah, I mean, certainly climate change is... Daunting? (laughs) Devastating. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's devastating already. It's daunting. It's hard to have a small child and to know Mm -hmm. uh, all the science that continues to come out about climate change and to have to explain it to him. Um, So, you know, it is hard to maintain optimism there. But, you know, at the very least, I think we're starting to make some progress nationally and also at the provincial scale, whether it's enough and fast enough is, is another question, but, you know, all we can really do is try to encourage the government of the day to act in a responsible way and in a way that is looking out for future generations. Mm-hmm. It definitely seems like the next generation is has a more of a focus on taking industry to task and only supporting industries that are conscious of their carbon footprint and of being sort of a green having green initiatives at the very least um for our listeners out there who want to learn a bit, little bit more about eco justice and maybe support the cause where can they go to find out more information absolutely I, well i'd encourage anyone to uh, visit our website which is at www.ecojustice.ca um and you know we have lots of information there about the work that we do our various uh lawsuits going on i gave one example of our work in Amjanong, but that's really mm-hmm. just a, a small, small example of, of the great work that my colleagues are doing every day. For sure. Well, c- thank you for doing all the great work. It's, it's. I mean, obviously someone has to fight this fight and we are very appreciative that you are doing it. Uh, Caitlin Mitchell is a lawyer representing EcoJustice. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks, Nolan. Coming up after the break, we'll learn about one of the best ways to green commute to work or school when the executive director of Bike Winnipeg, Mark Coho, joins us to talk about our city's infrastructure and bike safety and what the best way to get started with biking is if you're interested in uh, in trying that out for yourself. Before we get to that, though, here is Hugo Strasser with Les Bicyclettes de Belsies right here on River City 360. Welcome back to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now speaking with Mark Coho. He is the Executive Director for Bike Winnipeg. So first and foremost, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Bike Winnipeg organization and what it does? So uh, we're an advocacy organization. We were founded back in uh, 2007 uh, as Bike of the Future. We changed the name the last couple of years. And essentially what we're doing is we're advocating uh, towards the city and the province and the federal government uh, to get more cycling uh, infrastructure and programming out there. 
but uh, we also reach out into the public uh, to create partnerships and to really uh, educate people and uh, sort of encourage people to get out on their bikes. Our, our motto is really to get more people biking more often. What are some of the reasons why it's so important for our local governments to invest in improved cycling infrastructure in our city? For a lot of reasons. It's, uh, there's, there's health-based reasons where if we get people active, we really uh, reduce um, the amount of uh, chronic disease that we see in people uh, from a greenhouse gas emission, so a climate change initiative. Obviously, the more people that are out biking, the few people that are out, out driving, uh, and that reduces the amount of emissions we have, so it's, uh, it's very good for the planet. But from a city perspective as well, uh, it, it, it creates a vibrance, you know. It's it's different if you're on your bike and you meet someone you say hi than if you're sort of enclosed in that steel cage and your car driving along. Uh, you don't get that interaction. And you see that a lot. Um, one of, one example that really comes to mind for me is, uh, is Sherbrooke Street. And, uh, you know, always seeing the cyclists that are going by and stopping off at, at local businesses. So that is something that really... There is kind of a, a sense of community that gets built. The more you have infrastructure that really welcomes that and really um, encourages that kind of interaction. Yeah, it creates that eyes on the street. It really animates the streets, creates some activity. Uh, you know, you can stop, you pull up your bike, you you know. I mean, if you're, if you're biking past the shop and you see something that looks kind of interesting, uh, you just stop, lock up your bike, and you can go in, Right. Uh, but it's also, you know, sort of creating that, that patio atmosphere. And Sherbrooke is a great example, I think, of a street that we'd like to, to replicate uh, a little more in the city. You know, it's 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 got a lot of like a, a real community feel to it where people kind of know each other. Um, but it's also a street where, you know, you can go out and you can have a coffee on the patio. Um, you can, you know, reach into a store or, or, or whatnot. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's really a comfortable place to be. I think that's what we want to see more of in this city. One of the criticisms that you sometimes see people writing about online is the idea of, oh, why should we invest in, in better cycling infrastructure when we can only use it X number of months out of the year sort of thing? And I'm wondering if you can uh, kind of speak to, you know, what are some of the myths that people have when it comes to cycling in Winnipeg? People think we have a really short summer, but really we're dealing, we're dealing with four or five months of winter where, for sure, a good portion of people will put the bikes away. Part of that as well is that, you know, uh, here here in Winnipeg, we don't actually do much to encourage people to, to bike through the winter. We don't go out and plow the, the, the bike lanes very well. We don't keep um, pathways cleared in a lot of circumstances. So that for someone who does want to ride their bike through winter, uh, they're going to find there's a lot of barriers up there uh, in cities uh, where they do actually um, make an effort to, to clear paths in winter and make sure that you do have a, a way to get through in winter and that they're maintaining their, their pathways and their lanes uh, through winter. They actually see about 50% of people will ride through winter. So it's something where I think we could see a lot of growth here if we, we plan for it. In a lot of ways, it goes back to that old adage, if you build it, they will come. Because if anything, the more infrastructure there is, the more it actually does encourage people to to think, oh, there, you know, there is actually the option that maybe it might make sense for me to go biking now that it's a little bit more accessible, a little safer. Yeah, and that's, that's very true. You know, certainly if you do build it, uh, it comes. People will come along. And we've seen that in Winnipeg. We did before-after studies on a Cinnabon before they put the protected bike lane in on a Cinnabon. And we actually saw a 225% increase in the number of people uh, riding their bikes on a Cinnabon. So that's massive. 
and it's it's been shown around the world to uh, all sorts of different projects they've put in and it's pretty common to see like a 50 to 100 percent increase in the number of people biking when they when they put in a protected bike lane uh, it also does a huge job of cutting down on the number of people that are riding on the sidewalk to send a complaint uh, certainly we hear about um uh, but it's you know it's it's creating that that, that atmosphere and, you know, with protected bike lanes, there's a lot of research as well that shows that's what's really needed to get people out uh, and riding. You know, if you're not seeing that infrastructure that, that's going to take them from A to B, uh, if you're not providing that that uh, option of biking uh, in a safe, comfortable manner, you're not going to see the, the input. It, it really is sort of build it and people will come. What are some of the ways in which we can improve safety for cyclists here in our city? One of the things we've been pushing is a, a Vision Zero policy. And essentially, a Vision Zero policy is uh, it's, it's sort of a framework of thinking about your roads where uh, you, you take it for granted that, that people are going to be fallible and they're going to make mistakes. Um, but uh, really, your starting principle as well is that you don't want to have uh, anyone's trip, you know, uh, sort of getting from A to B, end in death or a serious injury. And with the sense that, you know, people are going to make mistakes, you sort of build that uh, into your roadway system so that when a mistake does happen, it doesn't result in that, that fatality or that serious injury. Uh, so you just sort of take the options away from people, and it's how you design your roads, it's how you enforce things, and it's how you, you put in education as well. It's really about, like as you mentioned, making sure everyone can get from point A to point B, and that goes whether you're traveling by car or whether you're taking a bike or whether you're walking as well, and and is part of the reason why it doesn't make sense for people to say, oh, why can't cyclists use sidewalks? Because, well, how many times have you been walking and, you know, maybe you're listening to headphones or something, and all of a sudden someone on a bike is just zooming past you? I like the approach that that really it's about making sure that that everyone is safe and and certainly making sure that there's dedicated infrastructure for cyclists where they don't have to worry about cars and equally don't have to worry about pedestrians. So if one of our listeners out there is maybe thinking, I'd be interested in trying to cycle to work or cycling to do a few errands, what's the easiest way that they could get started if they're interested in learning more about cycling? For sure. You know, you can look at our website, bikewinnipeg.ca, um, and you can link to the uh, city's uh, uh, bike map as well. That's a really good tool if you don't have a copy of it, um, and there will be uh, new copies coming out uh, in the spring. But uh, in the city's, uh, if you just uh, walk, cycle Winnipeg, if you just Google that, um, you should get to the city's uh, website uh, for the walking and cycling, and you can, you can locate there um, the, the map of uh, bike routes uh, throughout the city. And a great idea, you know, if you're thinking about uh, trying to, to bike to work, um, a good idea is to try it out on a Saturday before you, you actually go, just so you know your route, um, so you know kind of what to expect and what kind of time it's going to take. Then give yourself a little extra time on the, the first day when you go through. Um, make sure everything's in working order. And uh, it, it, you know, often you'll find it's it's going to take you less time than you might have thought. Um, you don't necessarily have to go on the, the roads that you take uh, driving, you know, so, you know, just because you're going down Portage Avenue is a, is a great example of a roadway where there's a, you know, it's a small turn that you can take that are a lot uh, more uh, low stress on a, on a bike. Uh, and the bike map certainly helps uh, locate some of those streets. But other things, you know, in your local community too, you know, just a trip down to the shop, 
uh, again, just sort of plan it out a little bit, take a look at the bike map, take a look at the route you're going to take, and then give it a try and uh, see how it feels. And, you know, you'll often find that it's, it's quite doable. Also, if people are interested in learning more about Bike Winnipeg, how can they go about getting involved? Certainly, they can uh, sign up to our newsletter. Um, you can go to our website at bikewinnipeg.ca. We post information on there. And we're on Facebook as well, which is a great way to keep up to date. We like to um, keep, you know, keep topics on our Facebook going out on different uh, open houses that are coming uh, through the city where, where, where you have a bit of a chance to provide some input on the capital projects. Uh, certainly a great way, you know, if we can uh, stand up as a voice and make sure that the uh, consultants and the engineers are, are hearing this. Um, we'll find that, that they're reactive to that and they are actually going to provide us with the, the facilities we want to have. But um, yeah, those are the two best ways to get onto our newsletter, our Facebook, and our website at bikewinnipeg.ca. We, we do have a fundraising concert coming up on Saturday, November 11th, and it's with Roger Roger and Heartbeat City. Uh, it's at Western Cultural Centre. Tickets are just uh, $15.00. And it goes towards supporting our, our advocacy work. And it'll be a real fun concert. Roger, Roger, or a, a brother-sister duo. Um, they get some fantastic harmonies. They're going to be playing with a full band that night. So it'll be a really, really fantastic show. Thanks very much to Mark Coho, the executive director of Bike Winnipeg, for speaking with me today. And if you'd like to learn more about Bike Winnipeg, as Mark said, you can visit bikewinnipeg.ca. Thanks, Robert. Coming up after the break, RC360's newest contributor, Sonny Primolo, and his conversation with Sarah Wallace from Multi-Material Stewardship Manitoba. They're going to be talking about some recycling tips and programs to help us become a more sustainable community. But first, here's Stylistics with You Make Me Feel Brand New, right here on RC360.
Thank you for listening to River City 360. Nolan and Robert here with you today. We've got a brand new addition to the RRC 360 team. You might have heard him last week in his debut story. Uh, Sonny Primolo is joining the team to bring you even more views and news from around Winnipeg. This is his second interview. Uh, it is with Sarah Wallace from Multimaterial Stewardship Manitoba. Sonny? I would like to welcome Sarah Wallace, Marketing and Communication Specialist from Multimaterial Stewardship Manitoba to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. For those who are unfamiliar with the work of MMSM, could you tell us what the Multimaterial Stewardship is all about? Uh, Multimaterial Stewardship Manitoba is a uh, not-for-profit, industry-funded program that develops and funds the residential recycling programs for the province of Manitoba. Uh, we have Sarah Wallace from MMSM here today to talk about some of the initiatives they have to help improve sustainability in our province. If you weren't aware, some of the work that MMSM does is to help our community understand what is and isn't recyclable. Earlier, you told me that there are many misconceptions about recycling. Could you share with us some of those misconceptions? 
Well, I think um, it always comes down to consumer education, um, and we have to educate ourselves to know what you can and can't put in the blue box. There are a lot of materials that are recyclable that um, actually don't belong in the blue box, and we are finding that's happening more often um, because there is that confusion. So any printed paper packaging Um, if it's packaging it can go in the blue box but if it's a a product so for example a toy or a laundry basket those are items that don't go in the blue box Um, the city of winnipeg has a fantastic for our depot program that they've launched in the last few years Um, there's currently two locations in the city there will be a third um, coming soon and that's a place where you can take items that may not belong in the blue box but they can be um you know, recycled and disposed of in a proper way. Another way to reduce the waste going into landfills is by reusing plastic bags. I know I have a ton sitting at home. Is there something we can do about those plastic bags that we aren't using? Absolutely. Um, It comes down to the three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. So first of all, we want to reduce the number of plastic bags that we're using. Secondly, bring a reusable bag to the store. That's a big one. I know we often forget them either in our cars um, or at home. So it's really important to make that extra effort. Um, On top of that, there are a lot of options if you do bring plastic bags home. So the first one um, would be return it back to a retailer. There's a lot of um, grocery stores and um, just retail stores stores in the city um, that have collection bins that you can drop off your bags at. You can take it to uh, Winnipeg Harvest or a local food bank. Um, That's our Bag It Forward program. All of the bags um, that are collected by Winnipeg Harvest are reused to create emergency food kits uh, for families in need. Um, So there is a great need for that. So you can drop them off there. Um, There's drop-off locations at um, the University of Manitoba, the University of Winnipeg, Red River College. Um, There's a lot of options. Just visit our website, simplyrecycle.ca, and you can find a full list of drop-off locations. According to a report done by the Winnipeg Foundation's Vital Science Project, 5,379,024 tons of greenhouse gases are emitted in Winnipeg annually. Approximately 14.9% of that is due to waste disposal. When you really think about it, that's a really large number. What are some tips you can provide to our listeners to help reduce this number? Uh, Number one, recycle everything you possibly can. Um, Reduce the waste that you're bringing into your home. We live sort of in a society of excess and um, we have to make those decisions before we bring something home and then make sure that we are recycling and disposing of um, items safely and properly. Um, Another piece would be organics. So composting in your home. The Green Action Center actually has a a new program now where um, they will come and do pickup. So as long as you have um, a number of um, neighbors that are also interested, there has to be a certain number um, of people signed up to the program. Um, You do have to pay a fee for it, but that would reduce um, your waste by at least 25% um, and recycling is about another 50% so that would only leave about 25% of your waste um, left to go to landfill so organics and recycling if you do both of those things you're going to significantly reduce your impact on the environment. The environment is one of the most pressing issues of our time. Noticeable differences in climate change and global warming are apparent, and it's up to us to make a change for the better. I would like to thank Sarah Wallace, Marketing and Communication Specialist from Multimaterial Stewardship Manitoba, for speaking with us today. But before I let you go, is there anything you would like to add? I just want to sort of go back to my point of education is key. So 
check out our website. There's a ton of online resources. Um, there is a lot um, available to you. You just have to, you know, take that extra step and, and look for it. Simplyrecycle.ca. Awesome. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks, Sunny. Coming up after the break, Eric Rose, Artistic Director with Ghost River Theatre, will join us to talk about Tomorrow's Child. It's being presented at the West End Cultural Centre in conjunction with Theatre Projects Manitoba. And uh, it's a play that you should actually go to, but not see. And we'll explain why after our next song. Before we get to that, though, here is Kirby Stone 4 with Rain, right here on River City 360. Welcome back to River City 360. Robert Zirk here with you today, and I am now joined by Eric Rose. He is the artistic director with Ghost River Theatre. Ghost River Theatre is here in Winnipeg to present, along with Theatre Projects Manitoba, its production of Tomorrow's Child, and we'll learn a little bit more about that and what makes this performance a very interesting one. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. First of all, can you give us a little bit of a synopsis about what Tomorrow's Child is all about? Tomorrow's Child is based on the short story by Ray Bradbury of the same um, title. It also can be found under the title The Shape of Things. Bradbury wrote the story in 1947 about a futuristic 1988-89. So because it's, uh, it's, uh, he was writing from that time period um, uh, about, of course, a future that is now our past, 
uh, we've kind of aptly named um, the kind of genre, kind of retrofuturism. <laughs> and uh, really the story surrounds um, a young couple named Peter and Polly Horn, and they're having, um, they're just about to have their first child. And so in this retrofuturistic world, of course, uh, Peter and Polly take a helicopter, because everybody flies in helicopters in this retrofuturistic world, to a hospital where uh, she will give birth through um, a machine called a birthing mech. And so, um, of course, they, they go in and everything is going fine until it isn't. And unfortunately, the birthing mech malfunctions and their child is born into the fourth dimension and appears to everyone like a blue pyramid with tentacles. And really, the, the story is really about Polly's and Peter's struggle to understand and contend with a child who is different. I would say in many ways, Polly goes through some postpartum depression. She struggles to understand and be with her, her child in a meaningful way and, and to kind of overcome the kind of barrier, of the, the dimensional barrier of what it is to have a child who's different in the world. And, and I think there's a lot of parallels there for a lot of parents who have had children who are different in some way, in some unique way, and trying to reconcile maybe what they thought parenthood would be or what they thought that what the child might look or, or be like in the world and then having to contend with a uh, very new reality. And and we've had, um, for instance, in a, in a very contemporary way, uh, a lot of parallels drawn from people who come uh, to the show around uh, as a parent with somebody who, uh, with autism, as an example. But I think that it, it works uh, on many different levels and many different parallels because that's what good science fiction is about. It presents... Um, kind of a thought experiment or a metaphor for for how as a society that we deal with that difference and I think even um, from that 1947 perspective it's still very very relevant today and we through the adaptation of course have adapted it for a blindfolded um, uh, audience as a uh, an immersive audio uh, sensory experience and um, there's something really beautiful and magical about telling the story just using an audio-only uh, platform. I wanted to discuss that because it's interesting. You get the sense that there might be a lot of visual elements to this play, but all the audience members who attend Tomorrow's Child are going to be blindfolded, essentially. And um, the play is is performed, but it's all um, it's all about audio and, and the focus on what you hear. Um, how did the idea for making sort of an audio based play come about? And why did you decide to make that such a focus? Well, Tomorrow's Child is the first installment uh, of a series of performances called the Six Senses Performance Series that Ghost River has been creating over the last four years. And so we initially wanted to create, um, I mean, I think, and I think the basic premise of the series is that Ghost River is kind of renowned for our, what I would call our Wagnerian approach to theater. We kind of have often taken uh, a total theater approach <laughs> and, uh, and that means that some of, often our work is kind of very large scale. We've used a lot of technology and multimedia in our work. And it was really interesting, instead of thinking about the totality of how to express ideas, it was really interesting to start to imagine creating work that just focuses very, very deeply on one of the senses in both that kind of restrictive artistic freedom. I know those sound like kind of almost opposite ideas. But in, I would say that most artists would, would embrace the idea of restriction because it helps to create innovation in your work. 
And so um, it was partly through through that notion that we wanted to change the way that we thought and perceived what could be possible within the, the theater or outside of the theater or using new methods and ideas um, to expand our kind of artistic practice and also expand how the audience thinks about story in relationship to the theatrical experience. There's a really interesting participatory element in all of these works. I'll give you an example. Last night in our audience, Tomorrow's Child, we had a talk back, and one of the students said, you know, she was the first one to speak after the show, and she said, you know, I just want to say what an incredibly imaginative experience that was for me, how vivid the images and ideas that were happening in my head, and how I appreciated actually being allowed or being the, the kind of creator of that imagery um, just based on the sound. And she said, you know, I don't think I could uh, imagine seeing this performance in kind of like a normal context of the theater where we would be building sets and casting characters and, you know, costumes because she felt so strongly about her own version, her unique version that, of course, she was making through her own experiences of the world. And I think that's really important that there's this really interesting idea of how we are in, uh, that every individual will have a different understanding of the show based on how they are and how they perceive the, the sound in the show. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to, um, to hear people's different interpretations of, of locations and characters and, and things that were very vivid for them. It's a, it's a really, it's been a fascinating experience. We've almost had close to 5,000 people uh, listen to the show over the last four years. It's kind of interesting Im- imagining the sense, like getting a sense that no two people are actually going to see this performance in the in the same way because they're imagining it so differently. And that could be based on their own perspectives and experiences and how they see the world or or maybe even from their perspective of where they're sitting in the audience absolutely no and and we sit um audience members in swivel chairs so their ability their agency in the performance to actually tune their ears and listen in different ways as they turn towards sound or away from sound um is also part of the uh, experience as well and that's what separates it in my mind from a radio play is that we didn't write it as a radio play we we, we adapt it as a sensory experience so that we're really interested in the full palette of sound and how sound um, um, uh, vibrates, as an example, or, or I call it like the geography of sound, how we can place people, as an example, listening from the perspective of being poly inside of the birthing mech, or we can go inside the womb, or we can go into the fourth dimension, or, you know what I mean? So it, it's really kind of freeing in many ways when you start to think like, well, the moment I take away people's sight, it sort of allows a whole other kind of experience to emerge. So with six uh, performances left on the schedule of Tomorrow's Child, where can people get more information? Uh, how can they go in and, uh, and check this out for themselves? Sure, it's playing at the West End Cultural Centre. And as you said, it plays every evening. And so for Thursday, it will be um, airing at 8 o'clock at the West End Cultural Centre. And then it actually um, uh, plays on Friday and Saturday, both at 7 and 9 o'clock at the West End Cultural Centre. And then we, we end with a, a matinee on Sunday at 4 p.m. Excellent. There's uh, six chances left to see Tomorrow's Child. So hopefully uh, hopefully people get down to the West End Cultural Centre. Take a helicopter if you have to. Uh, <laughs> Well, and, you know, the thing that I would say to people, too, is that what we're offering really is a deep listening experience. You know, I've asked, again, every single person who's come to the show, when was the last time that you listened to anything in the dark for, for an hour? 
and not a single person has yet to say, well, last week, I, it, it doesn't happen. And so I, I think that this is a significant opportunity for people to go into that imaginative meditative state and to really have a participatory experience uh, in creating uh, the world of tomorrow's child. Thank you very much to Eric Rose, the artistic director of Ghost River Theatre. And if you'd like to learn more about Tomorrow's Child, see the schedule of performances, or purchase tickets online, you can visit theaterprojectsmanitoba.ca. Or for more information about Ghost River Theatre and uh, their Six Senses series, you can visit ghostrivertheatre.com. Thanks, Robert. We've got time for one more tune before we say goodbye today. So how about Pee Wee Hunt with What Is This Thing Called Love? Right here on River City 360.
daffodil or rose, no matter where it grows, is such a lovely love song thing. A flower is the heart of spring that makes the rolling hillside sing. The gentle winds that blow, blow gently for they know. That's a wrap on this week's episode of River City 360. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and a huge thank you to all of our guests for talking with us. If you'd like to hear more views and news from around Winnipeg, listen to any of our past episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, please visit us online. The address is rivercity360.org. Again, that's rivercity360.org. River City 360, views and news from around Winnipeg, is a project of the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM. And we'd love to hear your feedback about the program. If there's anything you'd like to share with us about any of the stories you heard today or about the topic of sustainability in our city in general, give us a call on our listener line. We'd love to hear your feedback. It is open 24-7. Just leave us a message. Our number is 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, uh, if you'd like to... Give us a call, our number again, 204-944-9474, extension 360. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at RiverCity360 on Twitter and RiverCity360 on Facebook as well. I'm Nolan Bicknell, signing off and saying goodbye for River City 360. And I'm Robert Zirk. Thank you again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Have a great day and a great weekend. Mm-hmm.